This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall and Wilcox. My name's Mark Dunphy, and I'm a partner in the Employment and Workplace Relations team at Hall and Wilcox. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Melinda Bell, who's a special counsel in our Employment and Workplace Relations team, and her and I work very closely together for many, many years. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of underpayments. Underpayments is very topical at the moment uh, in the Employment and Workplace Relations space and has been now for a number of years. Underpayments claims have been getting an enormous amount of publicity. Uh, today, Melinda and I will be mentioning many examples of where underpayments uh, have been made. I want to stress that they're not ones that we have been involved with, but they've been ones that have been receiving a lot of publicity. Uh, for obvious reasons, we're not really at liberty to speak about the ones that we have been involved with or are currently involved with. So, Mel, it seems like everywhere you turn at the moment, underpayments, um, the, the issue of underpayments comes up and there's been some really big names over the last four or five years with very, very substantial substantial underpayments, whether it be Coles, Woolworths, etc. In your experience, how much of this is really going on? Yeah, Mark, I think, you know, everyone's seen the Coles and the Woolworths example and it's easy to put that, you know, aside and think, oh, that's in the hundreds of millions and they're the ones with the big problem. But what we're really seeing, I think, in our practice is that there is quite a lot of this actually going on. Um, yes, it's, it's impacted some of the big names, but what we're seeing is that we're seeing all manner of employers across so many different industries impacted by underpayments in some way, um, you know, from it might be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars up into the millions. So it's certainly a growing a growing issue and it's something that's certainly taking up more and more of our practice. And in your experience, Mel, are the are the payments deliberate or inadvertent? And I, it's, it's a bit of a leading question because in my experience, very few of them seem to be deliberate. It's more a result of, of the difficulty many employers have with following our very complex IR system of awards and enterprise agreements. Uh, and how difficult they can be to interpret and follow. I was wondering if you had a view with regard to that. Yeah, I agree, Mark. I think, you know, what we see is 99% of our clients and employers are getting themselves into trouble um, inadvertently. It's the complexity of the industrial relations system um, that's causing, or their, their awards and enterprise agreement system that's causing them issues. So, um, we're seeing things like the incorrect application of um, entitlements under enterprise agreements, so something misinterpreted um, or entered into a payroll system incorrectly, and then that goes unchecked year on year and when agreements are renegotiated, and then you see that that issue, you know, perpetuating in quite a significant underpayment impacting potentially thousands um, of employees. So those sorts of things... Um, it certainly contributed. The complexity, um, coverage clauses and so forth can create big issues. But what we're also seeing is some real the impact of some real business continuity issues. So changes in 
IR and ER processes and systems and people. So it might be, you know, um, business knowledge about how enterprise agreements have been interpreted or, you know, how they've been applied. Um, some, you know, we have personnel changes or payroll system changes and then things don't get caught and we're seeing issues arise um, where that loss of business continuity and that corporate knowledge is then impacting um, where entitlements aren't being provided to employees correctly and we ultimately have an underpayment claim arising. Yeah, I think it's sort of ironic that they arise under the very instruments being awards and enterprise agreements that are created under the Fair Work legislation where the Fair Work legislation itself um, indicates that its aims or the objects um, of it are to provide a a straightforward, simple system of terms and conditions of employment for businesses of all size in Australia. But maybe that's a topic for us to go into another day. Why is it a significant issue for uh, for businesses, Mel? What are the sorts of issues that businesses need to be to, to manage and the different stakeholders when there is an underpayments issue that comes up? Yeah, I think, Mark, the easiest thing is obviously the employees don't receive the correct pay. So they don't receive their correct remuneration, the superannuation and so forth. So that's, you know, the, the huge impact on the employees and how it impacts them personally. But from an employer perspective, dealing with um, an underpaying claim or a remediation is a significant, in, it's a significant undertaking um, by all parts of the business. It's really labour um, intensive rectification process, particularly if you've got a widespread underpayment issue. It might be a little bit less so if you've just got one small issue, but in a widespread or systematic problem, it requires a lot of resourcing to actually um, to remediate and rectify these issues. So from a business perspective, you're going to need your internal resources. So that's comprised usually of your HR, your um, you know, your in-house legal counsel, industrial relations team, if you have one. You'll also involve um, your payroll team because inevitably you're going to need to go through payroll records and time and attendance data, dealing with those sorts of things. And also the finance team dealing with, you know, not only the rectification and remediation, but also, you know, there's all the reporting flow and effects um, as well so you know from an audit perspective and disclosure requirements for um, large proprietary limited companies and also listed entities you're going to need access to your board and or you know your elt um, and briefing them is a significant undertaking um, although i think boards are getting more and more sort of au fait with these issues unfortunately as they arise more and more frequently um, and to rectify the time and cost of outsourcing as well because you're most likely going to need external legal support to go through that and also forensic accountants or data specialists to go through um, and manage that process. So that's, you know, that can be quite costly for a business, but it's not something that most businesses can handle internally just from a resourcing um, point of view. I think another big issue uh, that arises for employers, Mel, is with regard to publicity and particularly where it's discretionary spending by consumers, it can be really damning. And as an example of those, some of the high-profile underpayments uh, cases involving restaurants run by celebrity chefs over the last few years, the results or the publicity um, resulting from those overpayments has nearly result or has effectively resulted in the um, 
the end of those businesses. So I think that's something that employers really need to be aware of as well. Let's have a chat about what happens with the process when an employer discovers that they do have an underpayment issue. And then I want to um, I want you to tell us about what sort what sort of thinking goes on with an employer about when and how to involve the Fair Work Ombudsman and why they need to involve the Fair Work Ombudsman or why they need to give consideration to involving the Fair Work Ombudsman. Sure, thanks, Mark. I think this is an issue that's so difficult for everyone to navigate um, because unlike perhaps some of the more sophisticated regulators or other areas of law, um, we don't have a mandated reporting obligation. You know, there's nothing in the Fair Work Act that says when you get to, if you have X value of issue, then you need to go off and disclose to the Fair Work Ombudsman. Um, but what we do have um, is the Fair Work Ombudsman's um, Fair Work Ombudsman compliance and enforcement policy. So that's what regulates the way they'll go about managing um, compliance and deciding whether or not to litigate or, or issue proceedings for penalties against an employer who's breached their obligations under the National Employment Standards or the Fair Work Act or industrial instruments. Um, but what we've really seen, I think, from in the last sort of four years in particular, I would say, um, is a real shift in thinking um, around underpayments. And I think traditionally there was a view that even among the more conservative lawyers, that there wasn't a need to necessarily disclose to the Fair Work Ombudsman if you had um, what we'd say was a minor or a low-level underpayment. Um, however, you know, the Fair Work Ombudsman did very clearly change its litigation policy and sort of said that if there is an underpayment that extends sort of beyond a year or it's a pattern of systemic sort of conduct, then they would expect you to disclose. And what we've seen as a result is this sort of tidal wave of disclosures. So, um, you know, from the hundreds of thousands of dollars through the millions um, as a result of that policy shift. So, and the reason that we're seeing that that disclosure is for, com for compliance with that policy and to avoid, to try to mitigate the employer's risks against having proceedings issued against them for a penalty. So is it right to say, Mel, that there's no, though, one-size-fits-all approach to when you should necessarily go to the ombudsman? It might depend upon the nature of your business and whether you have ongoing disclosure obligations or whether you don't, whether there's unions involved and how much they know about it. And I think strategically there can be instances where it's best for an employer to try and tie the issue up and manage it and rectify the payments and then go to the ombudsman with a closed result but alternatively there will certainly be cases and I think you alluded to those with the supermarkets where they do have ongoing disclosure obligations and they have to do it at an early stage and work with the ombudsman collectively on getting the right result. Absolutely Mark 100% every every situation we have every example that we have with clients has to be considered with all of those factors and there's you know there will be quite a few where rectification is the best way and then disclosing to the ombudsman and we do need to consider all those factors and quite commonly um, as you know we'll often work out you know two or three various strategies for clients at the commencement of the process depending upon how 
different um, stakeholders or different issues play out as we progress. Um, and the other interesting thing to note is the Ombudsman is quite inundated. So um, anecdotally, what we're hearing is that, um, you know, going with some level of certainty as to what your issue is and the extent of that, and to a degree, I suggest even remediating that, um, might actually be received more favourably if it's a situation where that's appropriate. Um, rather than just, you know, marching up and saying we've got a problem and not being able to provide any real context to what that problem is, the size of that problem and what its impact is. Terrific. Mel, I thought we might finish with just going through a couple of case studies without naming names, but of the as to how these um, underpayments issues can arise. And Perhaps firstly, could you walk us through the scenario with regard to, uh, in an annualised salary example, how that, well, maybe if you could explain what an annualised salary is and then um, how that um, can lead to an underpayments issue. Yeah, sure thing, Mark. I think this is something that employers have grappled with. It's one of those complexities um, that employers have grappled with for a long time. So we do see and have seen an increasing um, amount of, you know, issues arising with these sorts of um, annualised salary issues. So there's sort of two ways that this issue arises. So we've got the strict annualised salary or annualised wage provisions of awards. So that's where, for example, under the Banking Finance and Insurance Award or the Clarks Award, an employee can be paid an annual salary in lieu of or in compensation for um, all award entitlements. So, you know, I'm paying you $70,000 um, and that's all an inclusive rate. I'm not going to be paying you overtime penalty rates and so forth because that's all compensated for in your annual salary. That's sort of complying then with the relevant underpinning award obligations. The second way that we see it arise is what's known as a common law set-off clause, and that might be a situation where either an award does or doesn't provide for annualised salaries, but similarly to um, the annualised salary or wage provisions of an award, an employee is paid a, an annual salary um, in compensation for award entitlements. And the idea is that they're paid sufficiently above the award minimum so as to compensate for all, you know, overtime, penalty rates um, and so forth that would otherwise be applicable and, and provided the contracts are drafted appropriately and the employees are paid a, a, an adequate amount to compensate for those award entitlements, those, those arrangements are quite lawful. But what we're seeing is with these annualised salaries is quite often they're a set and forget. So what happens is someone is paid um, an amount and the business thinks, okay, that's fine. You know, I've paid Melinda $65,000. The award minimums are, you know, 57 and that's going to be fine. Um, but what it doesn't take into account is that the need to review those annualised salaries. So what we've seen, for example, is clients setting um, a salary which is actually not significantly higher than the award minimum. And then the employees um, work hours which attract shift loadings or penalty rates under the awards. And so what then happens is that the employees actually, if you're looking at the award entitlements, would have taken home more than what their actual annualised salary is 
So if you do a comparison, for example, you're paying someone $57,000, but under the award, they should have actually taken home $61,000 based on their you know, working patterns, shift arrangements and so forth. And what happens there is that, um, that we've seen that arise in situations, in many situations, and then year on year when no one has reviewed um, the annualised salary arrangements, suddenly you can have quite significant underpayment claims or underpayments arising because those, you know, salaries aren't enough to compensate employees for what they would otherwise earn under the awards. And what about industrial instruments, Mel? I mean, how hard can it really be to get them wrong? Surely they just set out what an employer needs to pay uh, an employee from time to time for doing particular things, or isn't it that straightforward? Well, Mark, you would like to think it is that straightforward. I think sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, interestingly, um, increasingly, is payroll systems not being encoded correctly. So, for example, an enterprise agreement is negotiated by an IR team or employee relations manager or whoever it might be, um, and then there's changes to the relevant agreement, um, but the payroll system is not actually updated to reflect those new entitlements. So whether it's still coding things according to the former entitlement or things that are um, not coded correctly. So, for example, we had, um, a, you know, there's a, there's a number of examples I could turn to, but one um, which sort of sticks in my mind is that um, an enterprise agreement was renegotiated um, and the maximum breaks between shifts, so in a shift scenario, was 10 hours, so everyone gets a 10-hour rest break. And if the employees restart before their 10-hour break, they're paid at overtime rates for the rostered shift, which is pretty pretty standard sort of clause. However, there was an exception to this where by mutual and agreement, an employee could agree to return to work after eight hours and forgo those penalty rates. So just be paid at ordinary rates. And in this particular scenario, what we saw was that um, the payroll system in question had coded the entitlement at an eight-hour rest break rather than the 10, meaning that the employees weren't getting their 10-hour rest period um, and the penalty rates weren't actually being triggered. And as a result, when that is extrapolated across thousands of employees across a workforce, that can that small coding error can actually be very significant. That uh, simple award and agreement system coming back to roost again. That it is, Mark, that it is. Okay. Um, thanks very much, Mel, for taking us through some of the issues that arise with regards to, uh, to underpayments. While there's a lot going on in the employment and industrial relations space at the moment, um, particularly with COVID, these underpayments issues are still bubbling away. And uh, in my experience, they're going to continue to be a very, very significant issue uh, for employers for many, many years to come and perhaps until the award and industrial relations system is simplified um, somewhat. I want to thank everybody for listening to today's episode. Um, underpayments are certainly a very hot topic and we'll no doubt see a lot more happening in this space. If you have any questions, please contact a member of our employment and workplace relations team and you'll find our details on our website, paulandwilcox.com.au or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thanks very much. Thank you.